Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hi, I'm Don Payne. I'm glad to be your host for Engage 360. We uh, are glad you've joined us this week and are always glad that you do. We try to provide uh, conversations that are going to be encouraging and, and stimulating, informative as uh, you engage uh, the needs of the world with the redemptive power of the gospel in your own setting, wherever you are. We're excited this week to have uh, a topic that's going to uh, really cut to the heart of some things that we all struggle with. There was one time in my own life that I've been on a climbing wall. It's been a few years ago, and it was actually a pretty tall climbing wall as those things go. Uh, and I'm glad to say I made it to the top. But on the on the way up, one of the most challenging spaces on that wall was where the angle of the wall jutted out backward toward me. And I couldn't rely on gravity to help me stay against the wall. Gravity was actually moving me away from the wall. So it became all the more important to find the right handholds and footholds and the best way to position myself on them. Those were my only options. And in a way, that parallels how we often feel in light of the events that keep assaulting our nation. Uh, Few things, it seems, are uh, currently traumatizing our nation more than public acts of violence and the unprecedented rates of teen depression and suicide. And in some ways, those all seem to, to be linked. For the latter of those two, the number of families touched by this, either directly or indirectly, is staggering. And those are two of the more notable and alarming trends. It seems that a a more amorphous undercurrent of stress and despair exerts uh, an equally powerful, traumatizing influence on a lot in our country. So these days, any consideration of redemptive engagement with the world's needs has to confront these really disorienting phenomena, uh, the undercurrent of despair and hopelessness that contributes to so much trauma seems to be matched by a sense of despair and hopelessness that we can feel in knowing what to do about it. So we need to have a conversation about this, not simply to recycle uh, cliched denouncements or to uh, ameliorate our own sense of helplessness by launching programs and campaigns, but to identify some handholds, some footholds that will allow us to move forward meaningfully and redemptively. So to help us find some of these handholds in all of this, we have as guests this week two of my colleagues, two professors from our counseling department here at Denver Seminary, both with particular expertise and experience that can give us some wise guidance as we think about uh, all of these issues surrounding uh, trauma, traumatization, and what do we do about that? Dr. Heather Gingrich is a professor of counseling here at Denver Seminary. Dr. Gingrich earned a PhD from the University of the Philippines, an MA from Wheaton College Graduate School, and a BA from Carleton University in Canada. She specializes in the treatment of complex trauma, including adult survivors of abuse. She's done research writing and clinical work in the area of dissociative disorders and trauma. And she has a new book out called Restoring the Shattered Self, A Christian Counselor's Guide to Complex Trauma. Uh, Joining us also is Dr. Adam Wilson. 
uh, from our counseling department. Adam graduated from the University of Northern Colorado with a BA in psychology, an MA in counseling from Denver Seminary, and a PhD in counselor education and supervision from Regent University. He has worked with children and families in the Arapahoe Douglas Mental Health Network and has also worked within the school systems to coordinate the education and care of his clients. Uh, he served as the Director and Supervisor of Child and Family Services at Southwest Counseling Associates and is the co-author of a chapter entitled The Neurobiology of Stress and Trauma in a forthcoming book uh, by, edited by uh, Heather and Fred Gangrick. So welcome to uh, both of you. We're glad to have you on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Yeah. Let's uh, start the conversation by having you give us maybe a brief overall assessment of what uh, teenage students are dealing with currently, uh, especially in the context of their schools, and how that might compare to what was happening in some previous time periods. Yeah, this is a question that's been coming up a lot in a lot of different contexts and classes as well as just conversations because there's this sense based off of the headlines and based off of uh, statistics related to adolescent suicide or depression that there's this growing crisis uh, that's occurring. And so people have been trying to understand uh, what is causing this to these numbers to increase. The assumption would be that there's you know, an increase in overall uh, mental health issues uh, for adolescents, and and question is, why would that be? Um, so part of what um, we look at is that adolescents today uh, face unique pressures that just didn't exist in previous decades, and a lot of that surrounds technology and the pace of information. Um, it also has a lot to do with the nature of the culture and how it manages um, support resiliency um, factors that maybe supported teens in the past that aren't as uh, solidly in place today as they would have been in the past. So what you have is an increase of pressure or experience of pressure, whether that's academically, um, whether that's in the sports culture. Um, in America, there's a, a high, high emphasis placed on achievement in sports. And so there's a lot of pressure for students to maintain both academic performance at the highest levels as well as sports performance at the highest levels. Um, and, and the combination of those two uh, provides very little time for those other things in life that have been shown to be protective uh, against stress and anxiety, things like uh, extracurricular activities, time with friends, times with family, uh, times involved in activities like church or uh, other enjoyable activities. And so what we have is just kind of a, a you know a pressure cooker uh, that kids are existing in. That while some of the pressures might be the same uh, uh, concepts as existed in previous decades, it's the the intensity, the the combination of those pressures I think places unique um, weight on those students. That that seems to be almost a tidal wave that it's really hard to push back. Mm. Uh, it's one one thing for us to to name that to speak about it diagnostically and and at the same time that that seems to leave us wondering is there any reversal on this are, are there ways to mitigate that or or mean at least meaningfully dilute some of that pressure hmm. so i think when we look at the idea of the solutions uh, to the difficulty um, part of what we have to look at here is that the solution is within um, the larger context of our culture and family systems. 
Um, often we're looking at the individual once they're at a point of crisis. You know, a student has said they have suicidal thoughts or uh, they're starting to fail out of their classes or they're withdrawing and, and family and friends are getting concerned. And so people start to intervene at that point um, and try to get them connected to counselors, try to get them maybe perhaps on medication if that's needed. Uh, there's other solutions, but they're, they're reactive solutions. Right. And much of, of what we're finding is that while that is crucial and important to help uh, kids and, and uh, even adults who are in crisis, uh, the reality is the solution to the larger problem exists in our proactive uh, or wellness-based uh, approaches. So how do we approach life in general? Um, how is it that we set up our value system as a family or as a culture as to what success means, uh, what achievement means, um, how we define wellness at all? Um, and in our culture, the pace, you know, you combine in technology and the pace has quickened over time as we've incorporated technology into our workplaces and our home lives. Um, it becomes difficult to be proactive because we're perpetually reacting. Right. Um, so the solution is often in taking a deep breath, I think as a culture, as a family, in deciding how do we want to live our lives? How now shall we live? Uh, right, as, fan, as Francis Schaeffer right. asked the question. And while we can't necessarily change our whole culture all at once, we can change how we interact with our own children and what we say is success in our own families, you know, to encourage effort, say, rather than necessarily that something specific has to mean success in terms of achievement. Mm -hmm. um, one of the other things that was occurring to me is the whole social media and how people post their achievements. They don't generally post their failures. Yeah. And so that ends up with a kind of a false sense of what everyone else is experiencing and what their successes actually are. And I think that that has also increased some of this risk. There's been a lot of research uh, in recent years on the concept of resiliency um, and what factors play into resiliency. And so resiliency being the idea that when some, when some form of difficulty hits, um, is the person able to recover? Are they able when there's failure or there's um, an unexpected negative event, how is it that they are able to kind of stand back up after that? And it's not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps concept. It's more in the sense of are there these internal factors that people can have that allow them to be resilient against the negative impacts of, of trauma or against uh, stress? Because their trauma and stress, unfortunately, are unavoidable in a fallen world. This will happen. So it's more a question of how shall we respond to it as opposed to being impervious to it. And uh, there's a, a great book uh, by an author named Carol Dweck uh, written called Mindset, which is all about this idea of, of a growth mindset, the idea of how do I grow through failure or through difficulty as opposed to being successful by my abilities, by automatically being the best or winning every time. Uh, instead, it's through failure. How do I see that as an opportunity for growth? And that's, again, kind of that related concept of resiliency. Oh, very much. It's, uh, as, you're, as you're saying that, it, it makes me think of how our vision, even for what's often called discipleship or spiritual formation, needs to broaden uh, beyond the remediative uh, to the more uh, preemptive. Um, but that takes a particular vision, does it not, for that 
that is motivated by uh, the, the kind of person and persons we want to be and we want to nurture in others rather than always being in that reactive mode. I mean, being in a reactive mode is always uh, very motivating because you're, you're doing just that. You're reacting. Uh, and it's far more difficult to try to preempt or um, uh, predict a potential problem and prepare oneself, prepare others to face that when you're not yet facing it. And there are a lot of, lot of forces that would want us to believe that uh, it won't happen to us. It won't be our problem. And I think it, it connects very much, my mind is connecting it very much to uh, generationally, why would we have you know, this massive increase in uh, suicidality or depression or anxiety that might occur? And part of that difficulty comes from um, this big picture of how we experience life generationally. So if you look like the boomer generation, they, they grew up in the leave it to beaver uh, kind of generation where this, there's an idealism. This is the way life is supposed to be. It's pristine and it's perfect and orderly. And then you have uh, the Vietnam War and you have uh, Watergate and you have these experiences that all of a sudden just drastically contradicted that. And there was kind of a, a developmental crisis for that generation in that uh, what should be isn't. And I think in some ways there's a, a mirroring of that with current generations where there's an overprotection that's occurred and that uh, we do our best to, to safety-wise protect our kids and we try to limit the negative influences that they experience and you know, sleepovers are less common because of concerns about uh, what might happen outside right. of that. And yet there's this unfiltered access on the internet often. There's exposure through social media to concepts and topics and issues in the, the 24-hour news cycle. That they're not prepared to, they're to deal not, with. They, they're overwhelmed by, because the adults themselves are also overwhelmed by. And so what you have is then, I think this kind of uh, similar experience where my reality um, is both comforting and anxiety producing. I should be safe and yet I don't feel safe. And I think there, there's a, uh, for a lot of children, and I think us adults, we may not recognize it in ourselves as well um, because we have some of those resiliency factors or coping skills that can help us to compensate for that. But for our kiddos, they don't necessarily have those built in yet. And so they tend to decompensate a lot more quickly than maybe some adults would because they have less of that resiliency kind of built in already. Yeah, yeah. And of course, as Christians, we have a whole other perspective on some of this as well, and that is in terms of identity formation, our identity in Christ, both for ourselves and teaching our children that it is not about achievement. It is God who loves us because he created us and he created us wonderfully, whatever we achieve or, or don't achieve. Um, the other aspect is that I think we need to be careful how we talk to, to our children about God, even God's protection, because we can't promise our children that nothing bad will happen to them. Things, bad things do happen to all of us, even as Christians. And so I think even a, a, a theology of, of suffering that we can begin to talk to even our children about, that God will be with us in the midst of whatever happens is different than saying God will make sure nothing bad happens oh, to you. Oh, and that's, that is such powerful theological formation that, that has all kinds of resiliency effects, collateral effects in so many ways. Simply 
the way I, I just want to underscore how you've said that, Heather. The the way in which we talk about God's presence with us to children yes. has incredible long term effects. Yes, I think you can see if you look at somebody like Viktor Frankl and the Man's Search for Meaning is a very famous book where his experience in the Holocaust in the concentration camp was seeing those who seemed to have that resiliency through that horrendous experience and others who kind of collapsed and and failed. Um, emotionally or physically in that. And part of it he found was connected to what do they have that is larger, is outside of themselves, outside of these circumstances, outside of the evil being done to them that gives them an anchor, gives them a hope that's beyond this. And we think ultimately, you know, that that resiliency comes outside of ourself. It comes through a reliance on a God who loves us and cares for us, regardless of the evil that's that's been done or that exists in, in our life. Mm. So these are all things that can be part of how we talk to each other and talk to our children apart from any trauma before there's any trauma, just as part and parcel of, of teaching about life, right. developing character, developing um, a sense of what it is to, to live as a, as a person, as a, as a Christian in, in God's world. Um, that 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 kind of realistic sense, but also hope in in God that doesn't promise what isn't realistic um, is huge. Right. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to interact with both of you uh, in this episode is that w- it, it seems like we have uh, a rather broad-based, m- multifaceted. Uh, context of stressors, uh, some of the, many of the factors you've elucidated, Adam, that then contribute to this um, un, maybe unprecedented level of, of stress and, and trauma that is a little bit more, at least for me, for people like me, a little bit more difficult for me to get my hands around because it's so complex and so multi-angular. And then we have the more definable traumatizing events that come into people's lives, acts of violence, uh, other forms of, of sudden and indescribable loss, irreversible loss, uh, abuse that, that can set people back uh, miles, if that's the right metaphor, all at once. Uh, and, and this is such a complex phenomenon to get, uh, get some kind of purchase on and know how do we even begin to position ourselves? Now, we've talked about some of the, uh, the proactive, the, the uh, preemptive, the nurturance factors, um, but then there is remediation as well. There is um, addressing trauma that whatever the source, it has to, it, it's there. So, Heather, what do we need to know about trauma, this is your wheelhouse. What do we need to know about trauma and trauma recovery in light of these major trauma-inducing events at work in our country? Well, one thing that isn't always understood is that no one person will necessarily experience a particular event as traumatic. In other words, trauma is a subjective experience. So you may at times be surprised by someone who doesn't seem to be traumatized and be looking for the trauma that actually isn't there for them, maybe because of the resiliency factors that Adam talked about, that, that they're able to bounce back quickly. 
So not everyone will be traumatized even by something like a big event, like a school shooting. Uh, Conversely, there are things that can be perceived as very traumatizing by one individual that seem like something very small to someone else. So say in a school situation, maybe a comment is made by a teacher or even a fellow student in front of a class where uh, a student ends up feeling humiliated. And maybe everyone kind of laughs and goes on and doesn't think it's any big deal. You know, the kind of um, joking around can kind of happen. But for that particular individual, it may have kind of cut to something that was really sensitive to them. And that might actually be experienced as traumatic to them. So I think that's important to recognize is that, that it isn't so much the external event that is traumatic in itself, but it is the subjective perception and experience of that event that makes it traumatic or not. So it means we don't want to minimize something that, that for someone else is feeling like a big deal, saying, well, that's not a big deal, isn't going to help. That's, that's <laughs> just what was going through my mind, that the, the phrase, it's no big deal, really doesn't fit. No. Does it? No, it's not, it's not a helpful response. It, it, you really have to listen to why is this person experiencing this as a big deal or, or why are they not experiencing this as a big deal to make sure that they're not just kind of blocking out the trauma, they're not dissociated, they're not just cut off from it, but that it really isn't impacting them. Hmm. And, and certainly... Uh, the other factor is, you know, you, you mentioned abuse. There are all kinds of other factors, say adverse childhood experiences that include abuse, that include living in an alcoholic family or in a family where maybe a parent is struggling with mental illness or, or a, a divorce that's been very conflictual. Any of those kinds of factors can either serve to help with resilience. In other words, a child that goes through that and kind of survives is like, hey, I'm strong enough. I can handle anything. And so if like a school shooting comes up or something else, they can actually handle it pretty well. But it can also mean that those factors mean that they're more potentially more likely to respond negatively to a future trauma. So for example, there is research that shows that that um, military personnel who've been in combat are more likely to develop PTSD if they've had some kind of trauma in their background, if they're a mm. survivor of child abuse, for example, or one of these other adverse childhood experiences. They're then? more susceptible. Huh. Um, they're not as resilient um, because they're, they're already okay. are, are struggling, um, even if it's not not obvious or even if it's been kind of pushed away or, or hidden and then a, another big trauma then kind of opens Pandora's box. Sometimes the lid blows off. I think you could in some ways uh, kind of create a metaphor similar to like a, a traumatic brain injury uh, where if you have a concussion, there's a lot of emphasis now on removing uh, people from like, you know, a football game or pulling them away and they have to stay off the field, low impact uh, activity until their brain has had a chance to recover from that kind of bruising. 
And um, if there's a concussion that occurs on top of another concussion, the damage is much more significant yeah. and much more lasting. Yeah. And it's a similar idea neurologically, in fact, with, with trauma. It's the impact on you know, the limbic system and the other systems that kind of uh, manage the reaction to threat. Uh, when they have been affected by a trauma and they've been thrown out of balance, to have a repeated trauma exacerbates that problem and can make it uh, long-lasting. I think that's a good analogy, Adam. Uh, another thing that I wanted to to say is that trauma doesn't necessarily just go away with time. Time does not necessarily heal all wounds. Hmm. So you can have traumatic events that can impact people decades later. In fact, I just got a long letter from a childhood friend that I knew when I lived in Pakistan as a child, and we were both evacuated from the Indo-Pakistani War. I had some mild reactions to that for a while, some post-traumatic reactions to, to sirens that, that triggered responses of, of the um, memories of air raid sirens. But she has been, she reiterated details of of the 24 hours that she was in that zone that have continued to traumatize her. She has been severely impacted. I, I was really kind of shocked, but I was thinking that that is kind of a perfect illustration of how I didn't require any counseling over time. That response um, did go away, partly because of a six o'clock siren at Wheaton when I was there that, <laughs> that after a while just kind of desensitized me to sirens. Um, otherwise, I might still be struggling, but it wasn't. That it, had its it, own therapeutic effect. Yes, on you, it huh? did. How about it, that? It did. Um, but I didn't require any, any treatment from that. Yeah. But she was told that oh, there was nothing wrong because she was out of the war zone. This was before PTSD actually became a formal diagnosis, just a few years before. And and so she's really illustrative of how, of, of very many people's experience, that they just kind of hope it will go away. And often nightmares, flashbacks, high anxiety, fear, um, hypervigilance, kind of nervous system on edge are, are things that people can experience yeah. for decades. Yeah. I feel like we could, there, there's enough substance here that we could talk about this for three hours. I wish we had three hours. <laughs> uh, but for those of us who are not professionally trained in all this, either diagnostically or um, in terms of, of, of treatment options, do you have any practical tips for, for people in knowing how to navigate these areas, either with parents, with friends, with teachers, um, g give us some give us some thoughts on how we can approach this, how we can be sensitive to others who might be experiencing trauma. How to maybe how do we recognize what's going on? Well, on a very specific kind of uh, handholds. Uh, That's what I'm handholds. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm thinking. So, for those who actually would like to have some experiences with some, you know, trained climbing coaches um, related to crisis, um, actually, Caleb is going to be putting on a crisis training uh, in partnership with Denver Seminary, uh, connected to school-based crisis and uh, dealing with uh, kind of first aid uh, to stressful situations. 
Um, and so they, they will be walking people through some basic skills on how to respond when there are crises, not necessarily school shootings, but that would be a part of that, uh, that topic, but also things like suicidality and such. Um, but that's something specific coming up. And then just in general, listen, listen, listen. Uh, encourage people to talk about what happened. I think sometimes we're afraid that will make things worse, but people need to talk. They need to have permission and encouragement to talk about the details of their experience. And uh, whether that's to parents, whether that's to other friends, whether there are, are groups of people that have undergone the same kind of event, that, that can be very helpful. Not everyone needs professional help, but if someone's been given permission to talk and they, and they don't or they won't and they're still symptomatic, um, or they have been talking, but that doesn't seem to make anything better. That's an indicator that uh, that maybe a layperson should refer someone to professional help, to someone who specializes in the specific type of trauma. Okay. Okay. On that note, what does all of all of this imply for those who are training to serve professionally in this kind of area? Now, I'm teeing you up here to put in a plug for our counseling program. Okay. <laughs> We have a counseling program. <laughs> As a matter of fact, so we happens. do. <laughs> yeah. I, I teach the course on counseling for trauma and abuse that looks more at, at childhood adverse experiences. There are courses in crisis management. Um, and, and I'm a director of the school counseling program, and one of the things that I'm really excited about is um, our school counseling program is uh, geared around preparing uh, those who will be in schools to be very aware and very skilled in assessing and helping with mental health uh, issues as well as promoting wellness factors like resiliency. Um, and we're actually in the process of developing an initiative, the School Counseling Mental Health Initiative, where we're going to go into schools and do research on the mental health needs uh, and interventions that help uh, in that area within uh, the Denver Metro School uh, Districts and then try to expand that out. So within our program, there's these opportunities for students uh, to not just talk about the concepts, but to get really hands-on yeah. in their internships and practicums and then these research opportunities to, to dig into solutions and not just um, reading about the problems. Yeah, good. So this, this, is a, this is a thick topic. It's a heavy. Where, where do you find, where do you see hope and redemption at work in all of this? God. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, that God is, I mean, God is in control. It doesn't mean he makes these things happen. But, you know, this is not the new earth. This is the old earth. And ultimately, we, we do have hope that Christ will come again, make all things new. And that meanwhile, we can become closer to him through whatever we go through in life, including these kinds of traumas. That's not an automatic thing, yeah. but that is something that we are promised that if we, we continue on and strive to be in connection with God and, and, and struggle with the realities of life at the same time, that it's not just a simplistic kind of thing. That Yeah, well, what, what I hear you... Uh, getting at there, Heather, is that the the, the prospect of healing is a real prospect. It, yes. it is not going to be 
total, thorough, or exhaustive in this life, and yet there is real therapeutic process. There, oh, definitely. In, incremental healing that, is, that, a, is a real thing. It really does happen. That's right? why I specialize in yeah. trauma, because it's, it's not easy work, and it's not easy for people to go through, but there is hope. There is healing. People just have to be pointed in the right direction mm. at times. Yeah. And I think a piece I would put in there, any theology of suffering has to take into account uh, the reality that that God moves through suffering, not just occasionally, but uh, continually. That the gospel is based around Christ's suffering and what that brought about. And I think for for me, working with people um, who have experienced you know acute damage due to this world, as well as just the the general damage we all uh, suffer through and exist in, um, I think that hope that comes from knowing that God is not unfamiliar with suffering. Um, that Christ uh, suffered severe trauma, and yet God is a God who does not waste anything. And that in the midst of the yeah, damage, I always love that phrase. Yeah, He utilizes everything to bring about healing and good. Um, now, that's a process, a long process for some. Yeah, but, and very but incremental. In, and in Scripture, there are all kinds of verses, especially in the Psalms, that that validate that it's okay to express. Our depression, our grief, our questions, our anxieties. I, I love that the Psalms are part of the Bible because they are just such an authentic uh, expression of deep emotion. And I think that that can give us permission that we're in the midst of these struggles, that it's okay for us to lament. It's okay for us to question, to cry, to experience all of these things that doesn't make us less godly. I'm glad you brought that up. The Psalter really gives us a, a mouthpiece for all, maybe every conceivable human emotion, do they not? Hey, as we begin to wrap this up, what would be your top book or resource you would recommend to people on anything we've talked about? I think I'd take an angle specifically um, related to kids and trauma, and particularly kids and trauma in school. Uh, there's a fantastic author, Ross Green, uh, who wrote a book called Lost in School. And it's all about kids who have uh, trauma of, of various sorts or emotional dysregulation, um, but specifically related to trauma, and how often they're missed in the school as being behavioral problems, um, whether that's um, you know a lack of academic achievement or whether that's acting out. Uh, and yet the root is something deeper that um, they need engagement, they need support. And in doing that, it brings them to a place of being uh, successful and healthy. Good. Heather? Well, this is intended more as a book for counselors, but I think even non-counselors can get a lot of help from it in just understanding different types of trauma. And that's the book that you mentioned is forthcoming. It's actually been out for a while now, Treating Trauma and Christian Counseling, which goes through every conceivable type of trauma. So I think that could be helpful for people to just recognize that there can be different responses, different things that are helpful for different types of trauma. Mm. Thank you both. Thanks for taking time to do this. I have to say that every time I'm around you and your colleagues from the counseling department, I feel like I get smarter because I learn words I've never heard before, like dysregulative and things like that. I, I, so I'm going to be saying that word to myself the rest of this day, probably. Glad to be I'm going to be Yes, I'm going to be looking for places to 
talk about things being dysregulative. Did I say that word or was it? Dysregulated. Dysregulated, yes. I feel like I may be dysregulated right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, I want to give a shout out as we stop uh, to all those who are serving in ways and in places that touch people's lives with some of the hope and some of the healing uh, that we've talked about and that Christ offers. Um, What you do, those of you who are or touching people's lives this way will probably never make headlines, which is actually wonderful, I think, if your work preempts and prevents some of the hopelessness and despair that otherwise would have wrenched people's lives. So I want to thank our guests, Dr. Adam Wilson, Dr. Heather Gingrich. We're really grateful for for all that you've done. This is Engage 360 from Denver Seminary. I'm Don Payne. Thanks for listening. Check in next week for another conversation. 